Hi everyone, I'm Utkarsh, the founder of Network Capital. Thrilled to have uh, Ravi Venkatesan with me. Ravi has written a fascinating new book and has a portfolio of careers. And today we're going to dive deep into some of the principles that he advances in the book, which has a fascinating title. Ravi, tell us about the book and the title, um, What the Heck Do I Do With My Life? It resonates so strongly with Network Capital because one of our most popular fellowships is I Don't Know What I'm Doing what I want to do with my life fellowship. So Ravi, welcome to Network Capital. Tell us a bit about uh, yourself. What are you doing right now? And why did you write the book? Cool. Hey, it's a delight to be back in conversation with you, Utkarsh. I think the last time we did this was um, more than a year ago. So yeah. thanks for having me back. I um, wasn't sure you would uh, um, <laughs> after the last one. So yeah, so um, um, hello, everyone. Um, and um, yeah, well, I wrote this book because it's a question that has challenged and vexed me many times in my life. So if you're feeling this, realize that you're not alone. Um, I'm, I just turned 59 last week, um, so I'm sort of dating myself. But I would say with some um, a sort of candor that for 40 of these 59 years, I've been um, toying with this question. And the thing is, it comes, uh, comes up every few years um, uh, for most people. Now, some people you know, are born with great clarity of what their life is all about. De you know, I'm, I'm a writer, I'm a teacher, I'm, I'm a you know, programmer, whatever it is. Uh, it wasn't so for me. Uh, there were times when I had clarity about you know, the next phase. But then invariably, every five, seven years, uh, this question came up. And then I realized, Utkarsh, um, in the last decade or so, that the world is actually getting way more complicated. Uh, there are just so many factors which are converging, um, be it technology or, the you know, the fact that there's just so many new ideas about the way we want to organize ourselves and the planet which is resulting in lots of contention, polarization, hatred, all those kinds of things, fanned, of course, by crazy wacko leaders everywhere. Um, then, and there are bewildering choices now, just bewildering choices. When I was really young, which was some time ago, admittedly, uh, choices were really clear. Okay, If you were smart growing up in uh, at least in India, and it was true to some extent in some parts of the world. Uh, you had to be an engineer if you were smart or a doctor. And as a consolation prize, you could you know, be a scientist or a chartered accountant, but that was distinctly the next rung. And then you were basically a loser. Okay, So um, it was very clear. If you wanted the respect of your family and uh, friends and all that, you had to study really hard and be one of these things. Well, fortunately, I think the world has changed and there's an infinite variety of things um, we can do. But the problem with that choice is you have to make those choices. And um, um, the other thing that has changed substantially 
is the nature of work. Um, I distinctly remember that when I was graduating from Harvard Business School, this is 1992, the very last day, the they called us in and gave us career a uh, lesson on careers. And the, and the guy said, look, this job security where you enter a tunnel and emerge 40 years later, that's not going to happen for you guys. Okay, you'll have to change at least two or three jobs. And that's the tough news. Well, today, the world has changed to the point where I don't think jobs exist. Okay, the idea of a stable job, which you can count on, and then it leads to another stable job with the same employer, and then a nice career. Um, it's, it's relevant to a vanishingly few number of people. I think more and more of us will have to learn to figure out how to, you know, stand on our own feet, um, be entrepreneurs or freelancers or gig workers, which I think uh, you've successfully done and I've done successfully at a later date. Um, and so, but these, these, this all is very good, but it sounds terrifying to some people who are not used to it. Um, and so I began to realize uh, through my talking and writing on LinkedIn, etc., that there is this deep chord of anxiety, this uh, and uh, confusion, bewilderment, etc. Lots of people at different life stages: at 20, at, at 35, at when the midlife crisis hits in your 40s, people in their, you know, approaching retirement at 60. They all have the same question. Obviously, the answer varies a lot, depending on what life stage you are, the specific circumstances. But I felt that there were some generalizable ideas um, hmm. that might be useful. And so I decided to start writing this book. And I never realized it would take me, it would be so fiendishly complicated to write such a book. Uh, and it would take four or five years to accomplish this. Um, but there it is. That was the motivation. Right. Um, how did you choose the title? Great. Look, um, uh, the title is, sorry, I must put, was, what the heck? It was actually going to be WTF, but then I realized uh, that won't be too good for my reputation. Uh, and this was only going to be the working title. Uh, hmm. So uh, when I, you know, started working with a publisher and, uh, I said, okay, this is a working title and we'll change it. And as the whole thing emerges, the narrative, the stories emerge. But then as we got to the very end, we couldn't think of anything better. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's it stayed. The subtitle is How to Flourish in Turbulent Times. But really, this is the question. And the book's been out for about two weeks um and uh, there's a tremendous amount of conversation about this particularly on linkedin which anyways right. my core audience it's working professionals of all sorts and it's really the title the subject is really resonating i think this is the perf this is the one of the central questions of our time 100% so ravi when one looks at your career and your large body of work one would think that you have figured out a lot more than other people but as the author of the book perhaps there is a deeper story that uh, that your resume does not reflect do you want to tell us about that yeah what the look if you just read my resume it looks like oh, hey this guy's 
you know, different. He's sorted. He knows what he was. Uh, he's doing, uh, and there's just the singular string of sequential successes. Yeah, um, that's what it comes yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. Not, it, that's not the truth. <laughs> what it doesn't tell is um, the struggle to figure things out for myself, and uh, that's what I, you know, this one thing that we communicate to this audience that it should be that it's life is a struggle and the central struggle is actually to answer this question why am i here and what am i supposed to do with this life um and i have struggled mightily just like many if not most i've perhaps been more intentional about it than many um but no uh, what it doesn't tell is the many things i tried that didn't work the mm. things you know what i was hoping to be in my life that i wasn't <laughs> but uh what you do is um, you know there's a wonderful old book from the 50s by dale carnegie he said look if life hands you a lemon make lemonade and i love that you know, i just love that so for instance just to give you a simple story in 2011 i walked out of microsoft you spent some time in that company as well and I had, had a good uh, eight-year stretch there. But I was determined about just one thing. I'm not going to be an employee again. I'm not going to answer to some manager. I'm not going to be on some bozo calls explaining things to people. You know, I'm done with that. I had no clear roadmap for what I wanted to do with my life. So I said, okay, fine. Let me try lots of things. Okay? So let me just experiment with many many things and i did so one of the things i wanted to do was bring another hugely successful company to india um mm. this time not as the country manager like i was at microsoft or before that at other places but as an entrepreneur so mm. i said okay let me try first attempt was salesforce salesforce was really doing poorly in india so i reached out and said look why don't I help you to um, build Salesforce in India? But I want equity, and you eventually I, I'm happy to, you know, sell out, sell back to you once we build something substantial. The talks advanced to some stage. At least they didn't laugh at me. Um, but eventually it didn't work out. Then I tried to bring Amazon to India. This is like 2013. Mm. Um, so uh, those days I was. Uh, you know, uh, Narayan Murthy was a good friend and great mentor. So I said to Mr. Murthy, look, they need an Indian partner because of the FDI rules and retail. Why don't we, um, you know, become the partners? I'll provide the know-how of building a multinational in India and navigating all that. That was my last book. You provide the equity from the Indian perspective, and they bring all the know-how of their business. So he said, good idea. Let's do it. Uh, and so we started conversations with uh, Bezos and team. But the next thing you know, they realized they didn't need me. Okay, so Catamaran Ventures and Amazon got together, but there wasn't really any uh, need for me. I'm just being very honest about things I tried that didn't work out. Uh, I was going to do a startup selling cloud services to uh, SMEs. And I had a fantastic team of uh, my colleagues from Microsoft and we got funded. And then I realized the only reason I was doing this is because 
everybody else had the startup passion, but I wasn't passionate. So I said, hmm, wrong, wrong reason to do a startup. Hmm. Um, it was just the fear of missing out or FOMO or the herd mentality, whatever you call it. So what my resume will not tell you is the struggle um, and the many, many things I tried that didn't work out, not just in work life. I didn't get married till I was 47. <laughs> so, um, you know, it took me a long time to figure out uh, who I wanted to spend my life with. Um, and so many other things. So, you know, it's okay to experiment. That's what life is about. And eventually, hopefully, you will figure out why you're here. Understood. No, thank you, Ravi, for your candor and for explaining this with such clarity. Um, when you experienced a wide range of, let's say, transformation or tectonic events in your life, um, who did you turn to for counsel? And uh, what What's one thing you wish you knew when you were going through these turbulent times? You know, one of the things that I intuitively um, did well in the beginning is I rarely made important decisions on my own. Hmm. Uh, I would consult a set of people uh, I didn't always do what people said, but I would get multiple perspectives and then eventually decide for myself. This is not, this is just something I I did. And, you know, whether it was buying something expensive, like a house or a car, or the most uh, vivid example I can give is Microsoft. So 2003. Uh, I'd spent 16 years building diesel engines for a wonderful company called Cummins. I was right at the top. And then uh, there was this opportunity to join Microsoft. 2003 was when you know, Microsoft was at the height of its um, power. Uh, but it also was the Facebook of its time, kind of radioactive in its reputation. So I was... Uh, incredibly drawn to this adventure and the opportunity. But I was also quite, um, shall I say, well, concerned about failure. Um, at that time, the culture had a, was really nasty and not saying anything Satya hasn't said already. And um, so I went around talking to people. And almost unanimously, people said, don't do it. So I went to Nandan Nilakani, who was a mentor. And he said, no, mm. don't do it. But, you know, it's a it's a tough culture and also you don't know anything about IT, it's going to end badly. Um, I, asked, I asked my, you know, family, they said, don't do this. Everything's cozy at Cummins. Why would you want to, you know, take wacko risk? So nine out of 10 people said don't, but they gave me various good reasons for it. And eventually I said, forget all that. I'm going to do it. And, uh, you know, and the reason I did that was I said, when I turned 50, I was 40 then. I said, when I turn 50, which will I regret more? Having taken on this opportunity and been sacked for incompetence or um, you know, not having had the courage to try at all. And I said, let me go in then. It's okay. I'll treat it as a project. That was a different, hmm. That's a whole different subject. So uh, what I'm trying to say is I eventually stumbled on this idea that you should assemble your personal board of directors and mm. consult them for the, the decisions that are truly important and irreversible. Mm. 
And that has served me well. Not that I haven't made mistakes, but I think I've made most of these important decisions more intentionally with a wider array of perspectives and advice. And that's something I would encourage everyone to work on. Who are the 5, 10, 15 people uh, of various different types um, who you can count on for sound advice? Not that you will always agree with it and listen to them, but, but uh, great perspectives. Right. Ravi, how does one go about building that board of directors? You allude to it in your book, uh, the latest one. But could you give us uh, some techniques and mental models? Look, I worry about techniques um, because then in, in a certain sense, it's not techniques, but a way of being. And mm. little I know of you, you embody that, which mm. is you enjoy people, you connect with them, even if it's brief, there's a visceral connection. And that that short encounter leaves both sides saying, yeah, that was, I enjoyed it and I hope we meet again. Hmm. Okay. So, you know, this is the second or third time only that we're meeting, although we've had some exchanges uh, uh, on email. But I enjoyed every one of my interactions with you. And I'd say, yeah, I hope I, uh, you know, do more things with Karsha Khan. So it's about creating that feeling. And when you do that, as you go through life, you start meeting many people. And then you say, look, I really want um, to, I really admire that person. I want to be more like them. I, I, I wish I could have them as a mentor or whatever. Hmm. And through my life, I've, I've done that. Right? So I talked about, for instance, Narayan Murthy and Nandan as um, good examples. And they were, um, you know, the professors, different places, other sorts of people over the years I've met. Um, and so you don't go around calling them mentors. When somebody approaches me and say, hey, Ravi, will you be a mentor? I feel like fleeing because mm -hmm. it sounds formal with a time commitment and all that. If I just enjoy meeting that person and then tomorrow they say, hey, can I have 15 minutes of your time? And I, well, I just want some advice. Nine times out of 10, I will make the time. Okay, so this is what I'm saying. I think what mo is most important is try to make an authentic connection mm. with everybody you meet. Then figure out people who you admire for some reason and then create a little virtual directory of these right. people. And then tomorrow as the issue comes up, you say, who's relevant from my little directory? And, mm. uh, and you approach them. Does that make any yeah. sense or is this sounding weird? No, it makes perfect sense. Uh, it's about uh, intentionality and you're absolutely right. Uh, some of the people who've managed to build personal board of directors genuinely enjoy making a connection, adding specific value to other people. And uh, I think it's a lot more organic than it is uh, perhaps deliberate. Maybe it's a bit of both, I'm not sure. But, no, uh, it's, it's very organic. The moment you this deliberateness comes in, um, the other per we human beings are very intuitive. So hmm. the other person is also able to sense, oh, this Ravi, he wants something. Okay, hmm. he's okay, he's trying to build his network.
And most people don't really enjoy that. So yeah. I think, you know, just being in the moment and connecting. Uh, and then over time, you can figure out, oh, you know, so-and-so is a great person. I'd love to have spend more time with them or ask them a question or whatever it is. But I, I wouldn't say, it's, yeah, this intentionality has more downside than upside. Understood. Ravi, talk to me about micro experiments that you've yeah. done uh, to figure out uh, what the heck are you doing with your life or what the heck are people doing with their lives? <clears throat> That's a wonderful point. I, you know, um, there's a metaphor that uh, Deng Xiaoping, the, for, the old premier of uh, China, used to use, which I love, and I've got it in at least one or two places in my book, which is, he says, you have to cross the river by feeling your way across the stones. He says, when there's a powerful river and it has currents, places where it's just suddenly very deep, okay? It's, you can't cross it like you, there's a bridge over it. You have to feel your way. You've got a stick and you may, make sure that, uh, you know, you don't, it's not, you're not falling into something and, um, you know, you feel your way across the stones, etc., etc. And eventually, in some random zigzag way, you'll get to the other side. And I think in many, many situations in life that too in our turbulent or VUCA world, as we call it, hmm. we don't, we have a sense of, I want to go get there, but I don't know how to get there. And so you have to feel your way. And that's the micro experiments that you're talking about. So for example, 2011, I was very interested in the development sector or the social sector. I said, look, I'm 47 years old. I've made some money, enough for my needs. I'd love to make more, but that's not the most important thing. I want to take on a major problem of the world and I devote my all my energies, talent to it. But I couldn't figure out how to get started. So one of the experiments I started was cre creating an organization just in Bangalore called Social Venture Partners. I realized there were many people like me in Bangalore who have had some success and now at a point in life where they want to contribute to society but don't know how to get started, where to get started. So I said, look, one of the best things we can do is create this community of like-minded people who are searching. So hmm. we call it the, so based on a U Seattle model, we started social venture partners in Bangalore. And that turned out to be quite successful. So we started it in Bombay and uh, Pune and Delhi, et cetera. And now it's in many cities. But that was a terrific experience. Okay. Not I had no idea that it would lead to this. That then got me thinking about, okay, well, the problem I really want to focus on is uh, young people and entrepreneurship. That resulted in my starting the, the NGO I now run called GAME, Global Alliance for Mass Entrepreneurship. Next thing you know, I'm out there in New York pitching UNICEF for funding for GAME. And uh, Henrietta Ford, the director of UNICEF, says, uh, why don't you do this for UNICEF globally? So I said, I won't join you because I don't want to work in a bureaucracy, but give me 
some authority and resources and let, let's do it. So that's how I became UNICEF special representative for young people. And that's what we're trying to build around the world. That's led to what I'm about to do next in climate change, which is the Global Energy Alliance. All I'm saying is micro experiments can lead to unintended consequences of a very positive sort. You don't know where it's going to lead, but it's important right. to explain. At the same time, my micro experiments in doing a startup myself, a commercial startup, gave me the self-knowledge that that's not really what floats my boat. Okay. Hmm. So, um, I aborted that experiment after some time. Okay. So not everything is going to succeed in the way you intend. But everything, whether it succeeds or doesn't succeed in the way you want, gives you information. It gives right. you information about <clears throat> pathways that are open to you. It gives you information about yourself. What are you really good at? What will you? What do I really enjoy? Uh, Etc. So these micro experiments are powerful. And by the way, that's exactly what Gandhiji did and describes in uh, his book, "My Experiments with Truth." Okay. He's doing lots of experiments, both to discover the nature of the world and about himself. Right. So this is something I highly encourage all people to do. And by the way, I describe it quite a lot in the book. Yeah, um, I think uh, that is one of my favorite sections of the book, the importance of micro experiments. Interestingly, Ravi, even in the fellowship that we run, I don't know what I want to do with my life fellowship. There is an entire module where we actually have our students and fellows go and do a micro experiment to see how, whether they enjoy it, don't enjoy it, whether something floats their boat or not. Beautiful. By the way, that means you need to be um, promoting this book a lot more with your folks after this. I didn't know you're running a program called. But what I wanted to say is, look, there will be times in our life where you're clear you don't want to do what you're doing. Okay, you cannot stand it anymore, but it, there's a paycheck. You don't know what else you could be doing. And so you just grit your teeth and try to, um, uh, you know, stick it out and hope it'll get better. Okay. Yeah. And that's the time when you want to do these micro experiments, because mostly you can't think your way to the future. You have to experiment your way to that future. Okay, and for that you don't have to quit your job. Okay, if you need that paycheck to feed the family or whatever it is, that's fine. You can do a lot of these experiments on your own time. You can take a sabbatical. You could be doing things on weekends and so on and so forth. So uh, that is a very low risk, smart way uh, when you're feeling stuck to do these micro experiments and find your next uh, gig. Yeah. So absolutely, Ravi, we plan to make your book actually part of our curriculum. We run two programs focused on you know, not knowing. One is the I don't know what I want to do with my life fellowship. And the other is a new program we're starting called the Career Restart, which is basically for people who are trying to get back into the workforce. And again, yeah. micro experiments are so important. And you've somebody like you've written an entire book on it. So, yeah, it'll be part of the curriculum. Yeah, more than written a book. I've lived it. Okay, so one of the th reasons why it was so difficult to write this book is I didn't go around interviewing 20 successful people and said, here's the their formula. Yeah. This is my lived experience. So I said, look, if I 
haven't lived this and sorted it out for myself. I have no business, you know, recommending these ideas. So, um, yeah, so this is something I've lived and therefore I'm fairly confident. Um, and by the way, talking about re-entering the workforce, it's a really bad idea to come back to the workforce. Um, <laughs> so, uh, as you know, you've written a lot about the passion economy and finding your passion. And truly, if there is, you know, there are four, one of four or five messages in my book. It is the faster you're able to find the intersection of what you're good at, what you love doing, and what the world values, the better off you are. Okay. Uh, you really don't want to be part of some workforce. Uh, you don't really want to be um, in a job for any longer than you absolutely need to. Uh, I think there's a way better way to organize and live your life, uh, which is entirely within the grasp of any, certainly anybody who's tuning into this conversation. Yeah. Ravi, when I look at your work life, um, generally, I think you've built a portfolio of careers. You've done a wide range of things, many experiments. Um, do you think building a portfolio of careers is going to be the exception or the norm in the times to come? Totally the norm. If if what I have, if the way I've lived my life sounds exceptional, it's uh, that's just this moment. In five years and then ten years, I think more and more people are going to be living this way than the other way. Um, and there's just so many reasons, uh, of course, why that is so. Right. So one reason is just longevity. The reality mm -hmm. is. Uh, at least, uh, you know, where um, in most reasonable parts of the world, people are living longer. And uh, while that's generally good news, it also has problems. Uh, if you live to be typically 90, then the idea of retiring at 60 and going and being, living on a golf course or a beach for 30 years is crazy. Okay, you want to be engaged, you want to be productive. Of course, you want to be much more in control of your time. So you can play golf when you want to. But you do also want to be engaged and relevant and productive. Um, but nobody is going to touch um, a 50 year old or a 60 year old, let alone a 70 year old. So you've got to figure out, uh, you know, how what you're going to do and how you're going to feed yourself and so forth. Um, and that, that's com the compounding challenge is that jobs are changing so fast. The nature of skills and knowledge is changing so far. So you've got to reinvent yourself. Okay. So that's one thing that's happening. Um, you see the amount of turbulence that's buffeting companies. And so more and more of them are moving to much more flexible workforce where there's a small core. And then most more and more people are you know, working on contracts as consultants, as gig workers, of advisors, so on and so forth. All these flexible contracts, and now particularly after the pandemic, remotely. So um, I just think that the, these trends are very powerful. They've accelerated in these last two years. And so we're all going to have to learn uh, much sooner than later uh, how to live our lives and we're going to have to integrate enjoying life being productive and earning a living 
and learning all these three agendas um, you know all along um, the way so it used to be we lived this very simple three-stage life i described that also in the book you study till you're 20 you earn till you're 60 and then you retire and enjoy till you die uh, now you're going to have to do all three at the same time and mm. which means you need to have a portfolio of things that you do at any time some things pay you money some things you do for impact other things you do for enjoyment yet other things you do just for the joy of learning so that's how i've been living my life for the decade and i find it's very joyous and very sustainable yeah um ravi i think as people build their portfolio of careers the role of education also changes so uh, you maybe um have to reinvent the way education institutions are structured maybe companies need to change maybe people need to self-learn a lot more maybe communities become important what's your perspective first of all education system in any part of the world hasn't changed fundamentally in several hundred years yeah okay sure <clears throat> and as I write about in the book, it's designed for a world that no longer exists. The world it is designed for is much more stable. Information is precious, so you have to learn a lot of information. And it, and it teaches obedience, compliance, and all these sorts of things, fitting in. The world we're living in and going into is completely the opposite information is abundant any child with a cell phone can find all the world's information so what you need to be able to do is find information but it's there um, you need to be able to be entrepreneurial and problem solve and figure stuff out that's not taught out there um, in fact one of the worst things is the education system in most parts of the world is training us to be at the very things that software is better at okay and so it's churning out people who are eminently replaceable by ai okay so this is the issue now people have tried for and including bill gates you know after having spent many billions of dollars when i met him in 2018 he says that all i know is what doesn't work i can't tell you what works so it's notoriously hard to fix education systems they're very resistant to change so what i think let's not worry about fixing education systems or even corporate learning let's mm -hmm. focus on how we take care of ourselves as individuals so the yeah. focus of my book is not how education systems must evolve how should companies retrain their workforce i don't give a about these things what i care about is what can an individual do to help themselves? Okay. Yeah. And a lot of that is experiential learning. So uh, my focus in particular is on what I call cru crucible experiences, taking mm -hmm. on every now and then a significant new challenge, completely outside your comfort zone. And in the process of which you completely reinvent yourself, you learn about, you get self-confidence, you increase your learning agility, you develop leadership skills, um, problem-solving skills, and so on and so forth. All the things you need uh, mm. to flourish in the new world. So I would worry less about what 
India needs to do or Britain needs to do about the educational system. I'd focus more on what can I, what should I be doing? Understood. Um, Ravi, um, a couple of emotions that I want to talk to you, but very briefly, since Bill Gates uh, came up, um, I was uh, I saw you and Bill on a panel that the government in India had organized. And like, obviously, you know, Bill Gates for a while, but he's also written a very thoughtful comment on the book. Um, did he share something um, about the book to you privately or something that he told you that you'd like to share with our audience? How does that work? It's fascinating, right? So I, um, yeah, had done the book and I was, and the publisher said, you need some endorsements. And usually you think you try and create, you know, go out and get 20 endorsements. And I said, I, you know, I'm not going to do that. Who are the people I really admire, who I know? And can I get them to say something useful? So one of them was Bill, another Satya Nadella, Nandan, whatever, Kiran. Um, so I wrote to them and said, look, um, I've written this book. Here's the PDF. Here's the summary because you're busy. And oh, by the way, to make it really simple for you, here's a, a draft of something you might want to say, but which you can edit. Okay. Because they are incredibly busy people. Right. Now, Bill actually threw out my quote. <laughs> so he actually did say this. He says, as the world grows in complexity, you need to be more curious, more adaptable. Um, and so he, he did speed read some sections of it and said, no, that's the essence of this. So don't give me that garbage that you, <laughs> this, is, this is really. And so um, I do think, uh, um, if you think about Bill, there are some reasons to admire him. It's not just that he's very, very smart. There are a lot of really smart people in the world. But what, you know, the, over the years, the thing I, one of the reasons I've admired him tremendously is incredible curiosity about everything. In in the back in the days of 2003, when I was hired into Microsoft, he still used to interview every candidate. <laughs> that was his quality control. So I got to be interviewed by Bill. It was supposed to be 20 minutes. It lasted up close to an hour. And he, I remember he showed the greatest interest in the diesel engine industry that I was in. Hmm. So, and in every other conversation since then in nearly 20 years, he shows the most extraordinary curiosity about every aspect of life. And um, I think that is so central to being successful in this century. For sure. I mean, um, although I write about the passion economy a lot, and my next book is on passion economy, I think the essence is not follow your passion, it's follow your curiosity. And I think people like uh, the many people you mentioned do embody that, including yourself, Ravi. I think you're primarily <laughs> curious. Because passion is not static. What, exactly. what you're passionate about at 10 is different from what you're passionate about at 25 and 40 and 50 and so forth. It's a dynamic thing. So if you say follow your passion, well, um, you know, it's a it, it's a moving goalpost. And so yeah. I think it's better to say 
you know, curiosity because uh, that, that, yeah, I, I entirely agree with you. So as I look at what I am passionate about, that has changed profoundly. Hmm. I am no longer so passionate about business. I used to be incredibly passionate about it, write about it, and have a business review and all these places and blah. But, you know, I moved on. Um, and today I'm passionate about so many different things, particularly human potential, which is what we're hmm. talking about here. Yeah. How do you get more and more people to, you know, live their potential? Then I'm very passionate about climate change, which is my next adventure. And yeah. so, yeah, um, I think being alive means being curious. You look at a child, incredibly curious about everything around him or her. We lose that for a variety of reasons. Um, and it's time to become childlike again and be curious about everything. Yeah. Uh, congrats for uh, taking over the Global Climate Alliance. It's, uh, I know it's, it's going to be a new I'm not adventure. I'm simply serving it. <laughs> serving, serving the mission, rather. Now, yeah, Ravi, yeah. it's time to get a little personal. I'm going to ask you questions. Feel free to answer as much or as little as you want. All right. And this also stems, of course, from your book, because that's of primary interest to me. <clears throat> Talk to me about career regret and envy. Two things about people that you've observed or like people, maybe you've experienced some amount of regret or envy. Uh, sure. Because for us on NC, it keeps coming up. People look at other people's success and feel that, oh, wow, this person has figured out everything. What the heck am I doing with my life? Um, so talk to us about these two emotions. Yeah, let me just make it very personal because, um, yeah, look, for the longest time, I thought I was destined to be a great CEO, uh, <clears throat> CEO of a very large, um, monstrously successful company and all that comes with it. Um, so, for instance, I look at Satya Nadella and, uh, yeah, here's a funny incident which I'm talking about slightly publicly. Uh, in you know, in Microsoft, we do the um, uh, people planning process in March. Uh, yeah. We use it every year. And in 2007, when we were looking at the succession um, slate, um, I'd put Satya on it as my successor. Now, that sounds kind of hideously uh, unbelievable today. But back then, it was feasible, particularly since Satya wanted to spend some time in India, etc. And... Uh, yeah, today he's an extraordinarily successful CEO of an extraordinarily successful company. And, um, you know, would I want to be there? Yes, but he's, I don't think I'm qualified to be there. Um, but the point is, uh, until some years ago, I had regret about that. that but I wasn't willing to pay the tax. Okay, hmm. I wasn't willing to pay what it would have taken to be the CEO of a public company company which you have to do certain things and make certain choices and I was too much of a maverick and too much of had all these other interests to want to do it and th therefore there are consequences trade-offs if you will so that's one even today um, you know I look at these uh, young people building um, some amazingly successful companies also many amazingly bad companies which are unicorns and then the, my competitive juices flow again with Kirsch. I say, well, 
My friend Ashok Suta started Happiest Minds at 75, and it's a unicorn. So at, I can do it at 59. And then, mm. you know, I catch myself. <laughs> so there, there's not, so there's envy, there's um, the competitive desire, um, there are all these things. But then, you know, I've gradually sort of figured out that, no, this is my path. Uh, I'm choosing it intentionally. Uh, and therefore, there are upsides and um, consequences of that. And the upsides are on most days way better than, um, you know, the cost of missing out. You, know, you just look at a simple thing like money. Um, I was paid well uh, in my last job. But when I look at wage inflation over the decade, it has been stunning, just stunning. You know, like to like comparison is about three times. Okay. So I tried to think about sort of once I gave a talk and I said, I wonder how Bishan Singh Bedi thinks about when he looks at Kohli's, uh, you know, compensation. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, it's about that. And so, yeah, you feel some regret, some envy or all these things, but ah, you don't spend much time on it. You, you need to focus on your path. Right. Um, for, for, as long as I've known you, seen you, you're somebody who I think manages his energy really well. And I think some part of it is time management. Some part of it is choosing projects carefully. Some part of it may be willingness to make mistakes. Tell us about how you think about your day, your week, your month and your goals. I think the most important thing is not the day, the month and all that. It is clarity around two things um clarity around knowing what i'm good at and what i'm not good at hmm. and clarity around knowing what i enjoy and how i make my difference okay so for instance a long time ago i figured out i'm a decent sort of manager and decent ceo type but that's not i'm not exceptional okay i'm actually exceptional at a few other things. Uh, one of them, for instance, is, you know, get, getting people aligned behind a big goal and helping them achieve it. Okay. Now, from that clarity, I, what I'm able to do is start things or be associated with things and build great teams that benefit occasionally from my presence or guidance or networks or, you know, all that. But I don't have to be there uh, on a daily basis or even a weekly basis. Okay, from this uh, realization, I'm able to be involved in many more things because I'm those institutions, those projects, those missions, they're not crucially dependent on me operationally. Okay, so even in the startup that I, you know, the, called Game, mm. uh, yeah, I, I'm like a very involved founder, but there's a CEO, there are two co-founders, there's a phenomenal team, they're doing great work. I've got the same model at UNICEF. I did hire the CEO, a 
put together a great board. I'm on it. We built a bit good teams, not only in headquarters in New York, but in each country. And so I get sucked in when there's a crisis or occasion on a, you know, occasionally to think about strategy projects or funders or whatever, these kinds of things. So I think it, this is kind of important. Um, many years ago, I heard Warren Buffett. Uh, hmm. He was uh, in giving a talk and he says, look, I figured out in my first job that I hated managing people. Okay. And so I've done my utmost since then to not have to manage people. <laughs> so, so he has arranged his life and built teams around him so that he can concentrate on what he is good at, what he enjoys. So I think this is the most important trick in life. And that's the most important reason why I am able to do all the things that I am involved with, have done, etc. So that's one. The, with that comes, you have to be able to build good teams and teams that are very good at what you are not good at. And then you need to be able to trust them. So um, I learned to be quite decent at that. Um, and if you go to LinkedIn and see all the people on uh, who've commented on my uh, new book, a huge number of them are people from all the companies where we work together, whether it's Cummins or Bank of Baroda or Microsoft or Infosys or wherever else. And, and so it comes from fundamentally attracting good people and then giving them tons of freedom, tons of freedom so that they're able to, you know, expand to their potential. So I think this is another trick. Yeah, I think a big part of the uh, sort of good decision making and productivity and all that is also being good at saying no. Right. Okay, so you have to become very good at saying no to things that don't fit. Okay, they don't fit your priorities, don't fit your values, don't fit your interests, but, you know, but they'll have something that's interesting. So something comes along, it pays a great deal of money. So you get thinking about it for a nanosecond. And you say, other than the money, there's nothing here. So why would I do that? Or whatever. So, um, so yeah, I, I think you have to get clear and intentional about saying no to things. Absolutely. Um, when you look at your own career and when you look at people you've enjoyed working most with, uh, one, do you consider them to be generalists or specialists or a bit of both? And are you a generalist or a specialist or a bit of both? Oh, the second question is much easier. I'm hmm. totally, 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 utterly <laughs> generalist. Uh, I have uh, relatively few technical skills. Um, okay. And um, yeah, even at uh, when I was studying my uh, at business school 30 years ago now, I studied general management. I chose not to specialize in finance or operations or whatever it is. I was drawn towards that. And I write briefly about it in my book. I think that environment today um, favors generalists over specialists. But with a caveat, um, you and I have talked about this before, Utkarsh. I think it's helpful to have what's called a T profile. Okay where you start out 
developing expertise and some depth in some area and you have some accomplishment in that area uh, and then on top of that you become a generalist you become good at general management you get good at leadership you get good at you know general purpose problem solving etc and the reason why it's important to have that t is because over the years it gives you self confidence that you actually accomplish something significant uh which you can go back to otherwise you this imposter syndrome creeps in and i was right. reading some new linkedin report which says like some astonishing percentage of today's young people feel like imposters because they're not grounded necessarily in enough substantive accomplishment and expertise so i think this anchors you roots you etc but on top of that i think it's a enormous advantage to be a very good generalist a swiss army knife you should think about a swiss army knife versus a carving knife yeah for sure and ravi before we let you go is there anything that uh, we should have asked you that we haven't or any parting message for uh, people listening to you from around the world i think there's so many things um, because look um there are a lot of ideas that i try to capture which i think are very very important in this um moment in time and we have had only an hour uh to explore this so it's sort of like dipping your toe, toe in the water but you've done an extraordinary job i think um exploring some of these areas but um i would say i wish we had had more time and maybe we can do a follow up session on mindset for instance mindset yeah the thing that um i've realized more and more over the years is how important is um our mindset to everything in life what we achieve how we manifest and interact with others um how content and happy we are versus dissatisfied and unhappy um the quality of our relationship everything stems from mindset and so in fact the second chapter after set up the whole story is about mindset and i start i start as you know with two quotes one from um, henry henry ford uh says whether you think you can or whether you think you can't you're, you're right. right yeah okay. so that's one and then uh, bill gates who says uh what you believe is what you achieve so i wish we could have done more on that um i wish we could have uh, talked more about leadership hmm. because at this moment in time the most precious thing in this world the thing we're lacking most is just leadership a lot more of us who are willing to step up and be part of the solution somewhere on some issue and the model of leadership for this century is not about now great people with formal power like president or ceo or whatever it's people like you and i and everybody on this call deciding to act on some issue that is important so if we if, you know you could grant me two wishes i would say two more episodes on these two topics 
Done. We'll definitely have you back, Ravi. Uh, I think in the fellowships, the career restart and uh, the I don't know what I want to do with my life. And we'll definitely dive deep into mindset and leadership, two critical things. But I want to compliment you on writing an Amazon number one bestseller. I just saw that it hit the number one uh, uh, on Amazon charts today. I'm, it doesn't matter, but uh, it's a well-deserved recognition. It's an important book. It's a timely book. And I'm actually really happy to include it in the network capital curriculum. Well, I want to say thanks for two things. One is uh, uh, having me back on your show and uh, making such a strong plug for the book. And uh, look, I decided to, when we when I was writing this to price it really low so that anybody who can afford to have a you know good cup of coffee should be shouldn't you know not have to think about it. And we're giving away all proceeds to charity. So I hope, uh, uh, you know, more people will actually take the effort to buy it. More importantly, read it. So thank you and good luck to everybody who's listening in. And um, uh, if you want to continue the conversation, join me on LinkedIn. For sure. Thank you, Ravi. Look forward to having you back soon. And if you don't know what the heck you're doing with your life, it's okay. You have micro experiments, you have a lot of people, you have a tribe of mentors to figure it out. Thank you, Ravi. Have you back soon. Take care. Thank you.